What do art, STEM, and George Lopez have in common? I guess you'll just have to keep listening to find out. Oh, wrong intro. Hey everyone, this is Voices of Chandler, the podcast. I'm your host, Melina Suniga, and you're probably thinking to yourself, Melina, Art, STEM, and George Lopez have nothing in common. And that's when I say, you're right. But you'll listen to all of those topics in today's episode. If you've been listening to the show, you might have caught on by now that Peter Bug talks to a lot of artists. And Chandler's got a lot of art. But I think Miguel's story is unique in a sense of how he got into art. And his education was... Short of traditional, I'll just put it that way. My name is Peter Bug, and I'm the visual arts coordinator for the city, and I'm here today with Miguel Godoy for Chandler's Got Art. So without further ado, let's get Miguel answering some questions. So how long have you lived here in Chandler? I've lived in Chandler since 2018. Okay, so... So what, three years now? Three years. Yeah. And um, before that, you lived a bunch of different places, right? That's true. Well, I was in San Diego for 12 years. Before that, I was mm-hmm. in Georgia for 10, Columbus okay. and Atlanta. And before that, it was Hawaii for four years, New Jersey for two, and then Berlin, Germany for four years. And then Imperial Valley, California, that's my home base. And so I was there the first three years of my life. And those, uh, all the movings because of military parents? Right. Yes. Uh-huh. And Hawaii. Did I say Hawaii? You did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's that's, that's, place. that's one you don't want to miss. <laughs> so you got a lot of places to uh, compare, but uh, what makes Chandler special out of out of all those? We actually moved to Arizona in May of 2018, and this was in Apache Junction. My brother-in-law was living out there, and he hosted us for about four months before we found a house here in Chandler. And so we were out there in May. And um, and we and it was nice weather when we got here, and we told people we'd meet, we'd tell them where we came from, and they're like, "You came from San Diego for this?" <laughs> it's like you're in for a rude awakening. Um, you know, we we were up, I say we because um, you know I'm married with two kids. We were from uh, Imperial Valley, California. That's our home base. That's our hometown, and that's the desert as well. So you know, temperatures are very similar, and so we thought we'd be used to it. But it was a game changer. And the monsoons were a game changer. I love them. <laughs> cool. And then so back to the original question, what makes Chandler special? So that, that first weekend that we had moved in, um, we were kind of getting settled. We went to look for Mexican food because everyone around said, well, you got, you, you're not going to find good Mexican food. And, and, and I don't know if, if Arizona's got the right, everyone in San Diego. And I said, you know, we, we got to try it. We got to find it. And so the first place we looked up was a place called um, Tortas Ahogadas, Guadalajara, which is at the Seoul Market here on Arizona. Uh, uh, amazing place. Uh, all our family is from Guadalajara, Mexico. And so my wife would always go on about these tortas ahogadas. They're basically drowned tortas. A torta is like a Mexican sandwich that's really beefed up. Um, and they drown it in the salsa. And so we had it and it was amazing. You know, you can really tell a place if they can get it right. And uh, and that was it for us, right? Um, but to be honest with you, it, it's very diverse. You know, we live in South Chandler and we just fell in love with it. You know, and and still, and and are still in love with it. Yeah, no, it's um when I came here to interview, 
uh, I, I was over at the Chandler Center for the Arts and the, the kids coming out from Chandler High were on their break and I, I was uh, surprised and impressed by how diverse uh, all the all the kids at the school are. Yeah, yeah, and that's huge. That's huge for us, um, especially having two kids. You know, we definitely want to raise our children in a, in a diverse community, and so Chandler has that. Awesome. Um, so then, switching gears a little bit, uh, how did you begin painting, and how did how did your upbringing in all these different places influence your artwork? So, um, I think the. Let me answer the second question first. Um, you know, the first time I ever experienced art was on the Berlin Wall. We were we were stationed in Germany. I was very young, and we used to go to visit. We used to go to East Germany to visit East Germany, um, and that was you know that was very impactful as as a kid because you're you're going into this communist uh, side of of Germany. You know, we were in West we were in West Berlin, and so you're going to East Germany, and things are completely different. So it was very impactful. Um, but I always remember pro- crossing the Berlin Wall and seeing, I mean, for miles, all this graffiti. It's a lot of political graffiti. It was a lot of nice artwork, like really tailored graffiti. And so for me, that was the first impact. That was like the, the boom in the face, right? Um, and so from there... You're a young kid, you're impressionable, and, yeah. it like, and, and you remember it. Absolutely, yeah. And so that, for me, that was my first impression of art. Um, and then my father would always draw. And he was kind of, um, he would draw, uh, how can I say this, like street art, kind of like lowrider style, um, like lowrider culture style drawings. And so that's the type of stuff that he would draw and he'd draw it on us with little pins like tattoos and whatnot. And so that was kind of a, one of my first influences was uh, graffiti, then the lowrider art. And then we got into Marvel comics. Me and my brother have two brothers and a sister. And we were copying all the Marvel characters. And so that was that, those were my first influences. And then I decided, you know, I was kind of a knucklehead for a while. And, you know, I, I, I was writing on walls and, and getting in trouble. And, um, and then I decided to really take it serious and, and study art. Miguel went on and got his master's in fine arts in drawing and painting from Arizona State University. And as an ASU alum myself, I love me a good Sun Devil success story. But actually, it wasn't all sunshine and beating the Wildcats. You'd be surprised to know that Miguel got somewhat of a start by working security for an art museum. It was it was school. At, at one point, I had it on my resume under education because it was school for me. Um, it was it was it was both a blessing and a curse. Because I don't know if you've ever done security, but having a stand. I, for... I, I worked security one day. Did you? Yeah, that like that was like. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they desperately need. I was already working at a museum. They desperately needed somebody to come in. I came in. I worked one day, and I was just like, "No, that can't. Yeah. This is that's enough." <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was brutal. It was brutal. Um, and but you know, it was it was worth the sacrifice because I got to study so many incredible pieces of art and and learn so much. And not just not just from the works, but from the curators. Like really n- knowing the preparators and the curators. Um, as you and I were talking before, a lot of the people that work in museums, they're artists of some sort. And so it was just a really cool space to be in. Um, and, I, you know, it's weird because we had this abstract wing in the museum. And it was that space, you know, I'd, wa- I'd walk, you know, as a security guard, you're, you're walking through the galleries, right? And that space was the one that just, that just felt right. And so that's, um, so I've always had this calling to, to work, work abstract. abstract. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I and the when when it feels right, I I understand what you mean. We're like, 
you just keep on coming back to that spot. And there's right. something about it, and it makes you want to like figure out what's this thing in you that connects with the thing out there. Absolutely. So hip hop, I know that's also been a big influence for you, uh, both both the music, the, the music part, and the breakdancing. Um, can you can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's and let me go back to what you're saying. So as a young kid, you're you're very impressionable, right? Impressionable. And so in Berlin, Germany, this was in the early '80s. Hip hop hit hard. And so I was seeing breakdancing, and, and all, we have all these displaced American kids that are trying to grasp on to whatever America's doing, whatever the United States are doing. And so it was hip-hop because and, that's and what was big. Like even more than like most young kids or like a standard young kid is like somebody who's displaced is like trying to figure out their identity and where they fit in and, and all that sort of thing. And sure. So, so you're like latching yeah. on to anything you Oh, can. my gosh. It was crazy because, you know, I didn't know English until I was four years old. We grew up speaking nothing but Spanish. So I get plopped in Germany, and I'm having to learn English and German. And so it's kind of like, what am I? What are, who am I? You know, what are we doing here? Um, but fortunately, it, we, 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 we had a really strong community with all the military families. And a lot of those, um, a lot of those kids that were coming over brought the breakdancing, brought the hip-hop, brought the music with them. And so that's when I first saw breakdance, when I first saw hip-hop was in the basements of, of, um, of our apartments where we used to live in, in Berlin. And so that's where I first started trying breakdancing. And, and so you got the breakdancing and the graffiti, and, and you'd go out to the Volksfest where these big festivals, German festivals, and there'd be breakdance. The German kids would be out there breakdancing, and we'd bat- be battling with American kids. And so it was just um, it was a big culture clash. I just fell in love with it. And I said, that's I think this is who I'm supposed to be. <laughs> so... And, and from there, like, into graffiti, and then from there, more graffiti, and from there into, right. into different artwork as well? Yeah, it's something, so, like, between each duty station, so moving on from Germany, between each duty station, it's something that um, you would kind of look for in people. You know, it's, it's a certain style. It's a certain talk. It's a certain walk. Um, it's, it's what you look for, and I think, for me, it was like a survival mechanism. It's, um, that's, that's how I learned to navigate all these liminal spaces, all these in-between spaces, because I can find something that's familiar. And so I would always look, and you could tell. You know, I, you know, I was just telling my wife this the other day. Like, I could tell. I just had, this, like, a spidey sense for who was hip-hop, right? And, um, and it's what got me to where I am today. So, Awesome. And, and we're glad that you're here. Yeah. Uh, so I first saw your mural work in Phoenix and I know that you've done murals in a few cities in California as well. Um, how do you approach mural painting compared to like canvases and indoor exhibition work? Right. You know, it's if I were to paint a picture for you, you're in your studio and you have a canvas up, and you sit down in your chair. Your canvas is freshly prepped, and you're looking at it, and and you're thinking about what you're going to do. Right. It's the same way that I approach a space. You know, you sit with it. You know, I'll I'll go to a a if it's a wall, if it's a building. I'll go to that building in the morning, you know, I'll see what the weather's like, I'll see if it's shaded, I'll see what, what all that's looking like, yeah. and then I'll start to ask questions, and then I'll, and I'll go to a coffee shop or go to the adjacent shops and start asking questions and find out the history of that space because that's what's important, right? Um, if, if you want the work to be sustainable, if you really want to make a solid contribution to a space, you've got to know what's there. So I think that's how I would start it, if, if I can kind of paint a picture for you. Talking about certain styles, and if you look at some of Miguel's exhibit artwork and murals, you'll notice that a lot of his stuff is vibrant, colorful, and inspired by that graffiti background and culture. 
you might have noticed that his smaller scale work is in a circle. And that's because... For some reason, the right angle just wasn't behaving itself. <laughs> so, you, didn't, and, you didn't get along. No, we just didn't get along. And, um, you know, coming like when, like when you were, were, you're working murals, you're out in that space. That space tells you what it wants to do, right? Um, but when you're having to kind of make the decision of the orientation of the work, um, that's, that's what was happening. I, was, it was, I found it very challenging to work with, with the right angles. And I started to understand that it, it came from my dancing background. All my movements, all my idea of, um, of movement and rhythm and flow and orientation and spatial awareness was in a circle. You know, a lot of the dance moves are in circular patterns. Um, we dance in a circle. There's a lot of spinning. There's a lot of sp there's there's a lot of spinning too, and so um, and we dance in a circle, and so that's where I started to understand. Well, maybe I need to to visit the tondo, in my work, and and the, the tondo being the round pieces, and so that's kind of where I have found a home. That's kind of where the work starts to make sense. It's a good start for me. So leave the rectangular canvases to the line dancers. Right. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I know that you're also into boxing. Is, 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 I mean, that's not a lot of artists are into boxing. Right. Uh, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like art, music, that makes sense, art, dancing. Yeah. Uh, but, but boxing, how, how does that fit into all of this? Um, you know, the way I have approached it is, is, is rhythm and flow. And, um, and, you know, Miles Davis, was one of the best examples, was also a boxer. Okay. And it's, and it's what he enjoyed about boxing, too. Um, and it's very physical. And I think that's it's what I like about abstract work is that it is very physical. You know, when, I've, when I'm doing a, a portrait or I'm doing something realistic, I'm sitting down. You know, I'm looking at the source and I'm painting it and I'm trying to get it to look exactly like it. And, it's, and I'm sitting down and, it's, and it's, it has its own value. But when you're doing abstract work, you're on your feet. You know, you're bending over, you're slapping paint around. And it's and you get into this rhythm the same way that I find in, in boxing. And so I think for me, that's that's kind of how I marry the two or the three. If we, we put breakdancing into it, too. All right. <laughs> if you're familiar with Miguel's work or if you follow him on his social media, you might already know where you can spot his murals. But even if you didn't, you know, I got you. His first mural was a huge collaborative effort with several other muralists and community members, which is on Grant Street in downtown Phoenix in the Warehouse District. Another one of his murals is on Park Central in Midtown Phoenix, also in collaboration with other local muralists. And if you're a sports fan, you might recognize a mural that Miguel recently finished for the Cardinals at the State Farm Stadium. But what can you expect to see at this exhibit? The shape. And, you know, one thing that I started to understand, what, if, if it's not a right angle, if it's not going to be a circle, then what is it going to be? And I started to look at text. At the, at, at the same time that I was studying for my MFA, I was teaching my children how to read and write. And seeing how they started to put letters together to, to make words and understanding all the um, frustration and the, and, the, and the aha moments that happen within each letter. I started to look at those spaces and, and, start, and I started to understand that there's a lot happening there. You know, for us, we take it for granted. This is so second nature. We can, we can spit off words like, like nothing. But for children, it's like it's, it's, it's slow. 
you know? It's and work. It's hard work. It is. It is. And so it, it, it was like warping time. It taught me to take my time. It taught me to look in the gap, to get in between these letters. And that's why I started to look at these um, spaces, which are called counterforms. You've got your letter forms, which are the letters. And in between the letters are the counterforms. Um, and so coming from a graffiti background, doing a lot of lettering, I was always very aware, very cognizant of these counterforms and how they would play into your letter. We call them 3D in graffiti. Um, you have to think about everything, spatial awareness, right? And so this is where I started to come back to it. And that's, that for me was a jump off point to starting to understand liminal spaces, navigating in between spaces, right? Um, navigating understanding of, of place and belonging. And so these shapes started to take on a different understanding. Um, and, and I use them as a metaphor for, for my works. Awesome. So uh, we're going to be seeing some, some in-between letter spaces yes. in your exhibition. And we're going to be seeing some, some round paintings. You'll see some tondos. You'll see some, I have some drawings, um, okay. some things that I've done with charcoal and Duralar, um, with liquid charcoal. Um, there's going to be some paintings. I'm going to do an installation on one of the walls. It's an eight foot by 20 foot wall. So I'm really jazzed up about that. And then I've invited a couple of my DJ buddies and some of my dancers, some of my B-boys and B-girl buddies. And we're going to have a cypher. We're going to have a live cypher at this show. Awesome. Yeah. That, this should be exciting. Yeah. Bring energy. Oh, man, we're going to merge. We're going to merge a bunch of worlds that night. I don't know about you guys, but art, music, and ciphers all sound like a great time to me. Miguel Godoy's abstracting identity is at the gallery within the CCA from October 2nd to November 13th, so make sure you check it out. I wanted to give a huge shout out to Peter for always finding these amazing artists to interview and Miguel Godoy. I felt like I really knew him personally through that interview, so thank you for sharing your artistic endeavors and being super genuine, Miguel. Talking about success stories, Nikki Tapia highlights Freddie Lajvardi, Vice President of STEM Initiatives at the CSEP Puede Foundation. You might have heard of him. As a former educator, Lajvardi went on to mentor high school students through extracurriculars, specifically a water robotics team. This is where George Lopez comes in. Four undocumented Hispanic high school students wanted to start an extracurricular robotics club at Carl Hayden High School and went on to win a national competition, beating out MIT with zero experience, $800, and used car parts. His story and that of his students has been nationally acclaimed, and you might have heard of it or seen it because there's a movie starring George Lopez that's inspired by their story. This is unapologetically diverse. Can you tell us a little bit first and foremost about your background and, and sure. kind of who you are? So I taught at Carl Hayden High School in the Phoenix Union High School District for 30 years. While I was there, we started a robotics program and uh, it got pretty well known and, and I guess recognized worldwide. When in 2004, we entered an underwater robotics competition against universities. And as a high school, we won first place in the country. Second place was MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Wow, and they're pretty smart. Yeah, that's what you would think. You know? <laughs> so uh, based on that success, although it took about nine months before people realized what happened, uh, the movie was made 10 years later mm -hmm. called Spare Parts that uh, George Lopez plays a combination of myself and uh, Dr. Alan Cameron. Uh, we were two teachers that partnered up to do this. Okay. And um, 
since that movie's come out, more people have heard the story, and I'd retired from public education at that time and started working with the Cici Puede Foundation mm-hmm. uh, because I believe in you know the mission they're trying to 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 accomplish, and that's in, in the case of STEM is to bridge that STEM divide that exists between the people who ag- have access to STEM and the people that don't. Okay, so you started this, you said 30 years you've been teaching Carl mm-hmm. Hayden. How did these kids who didn't have access to things and, and, and you're teaching, how did they become this team that just came and beat MIT, came in first place? I mean, what was it, that special sauce like we can ask? So I, I don't know if it's a special sauce other than hard work and just believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we followed the scientific method and we followed proper engineering procedures. You, trial and error you analyze what didn't work you try to fix it mm-hmm. and so that's the approach we use with the kids so that they didn't have to have a lot of theoretical background going in someone like MIT might mm-hmm. and they might not try things because their theory is blocking them whereas for us if we had an idea if we weren't sure we'd say try it if it doesn't work maybe we can make it work if it doesn't work for sure we know it won't work we won't do it but right. trial and error so we, we tested a lot of things there were um, certain tasks that we were trying to accomplish when we called the experts they said you know we don't think that'll work but we don't know so instead of just going with that we went and said well, we're going to try it anyway and we'd find out that it did work uh, just because it was in an area that they weren't normally used to mm-hmm. uh, they just made assumptions and I think that's what a lot of people who tend to think they know everything do mm-hmm. so that's one aspect the other aspect was I think because of the internet uh, there's a book by Thomas Friedman called the, the earth is flat or the flat earth basically talks about how the internet kind of levels the playing field. So really, there was no information that MIT could get that we couldn't get as well, as long as we knew what questions to ask. Mm-hmm. One of those happened to be from a company called Omega Engineering, uh, who we called up to ask about you know, how we can make an underwater temperature probe uh, using a thermistor. Mm-hmm. And the technician online says, well, that's funny, because uh, MIT called just a few minutes ago and, uh, but you guys are going to beat MIT. I said, well, how do you know that? And, you know, we're, we're just a high school. He said, well, you're doing the right things. I'm a guy who works with this. I do stuff for NASA all the time. And they come up and call us and say, hey, this is what we want. They don't ask us any questions at all. You guys come up and say, hey, how do you do this? So we get to share our expertise with you. We never get to do that. So we're excited that you're doing that. And we think someone like you will beat MIT. So he actually predicted that we would beat MIT. And we just kind of dismissed it saying, yeah, we're just glad you're helping us, but yeah, we're not going to beat MIT. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, hard work and just being an open mind and trying everything Mm -hmm. is just the key. Believing in yourself, thinking Mm -hmm. that you can compete against everybody, that no one has a brain more advanced than you. Everyone can learn. Mm -hmm. As long as you keep keep that in your forefront, then you you can compete. But there's people that let that block them. They think they can't do that, and so they don't ever try. So how did a high school team end up going against some of the best universities in the country? Spoiler alert, and I'm sorry if you haven't seen Spare Parts yet, but it was actually their idea. When the squad got to the competition, they thought if they did better than some of the colleges and universities, it would boost morale. Little did they know they would beat out Ivy Leagues like Cornell, top-notch schools like MIT and Virginia Tech. But to understand what they did there and what they were learning while doing it, we have to know what STEM is, beyond the acronyms. Well, STEM is something that a lot of people get confused about. It's, it's not a topic so much as it is a process. And so a lot of people you know, 
misappropriate, I call it STEM. They put STEM in with the title of what they're doing, you know, saying, well, we have science, technology, engineering, and mathematics at our school, so we're a STEM school. Well, that's not exactly right. STEM is a process of encountering problems in the real world and then using those disciplines to help come up with a solution as an interdisciplinary process, not individual subjects. Right. So just because you know math or just because you know science, that doesn't mean you know STEM. Right. STEM, by definition, is being able to solve problems using science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Right. And so unlike a lot of other organizations that exist out there, we embrace that. We are all about the process. We're all about the scientific method. We're all about following procedure, about analyzing why things don't work. That whole process leads us to success. And if the students understand the process, it doesn't matter if content-wise you are not able to reach or teach the content that you want to at that time, as long as they understand the process. Because mm -hmm. I've been criticized of going around promoting this, saying, well, if your kids don't you know, get exposed to pneumatics, which is using air to operate cylinders to manipulate robotic arms and stuff, then how are they ever going to know it? Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, you're missing the point. If they understand the scientific process and know how to go through the engineering, how hard is it going to be for them to discover how STEM works when they do encounter it? It's more important that they understand the process right. than they do the content. Yeah. Content changes all the time, but the process doesn't. And I feel like that can help in other ways, not yes. just in STEM, right? That's like a lifestyle thing. So you guys are helping children, students, learn things that tools that they'll use throughout their adult life it's exactly the same i used to use the analogy of trying to ask a girl on a date as an example for stem and everybody's looking at me like you gotta be crazy <laughs> say look same process you ask a girl because you think you know i'm a good looking guy i can you know i, I i'm pretty popular if i ask her out she'll go out with me right mm -hmm. you ask her and she says no what's the first thing you do you're trying to analyze okay what's wrong with me what am i missing what do i need to do differently did was i too forward you know so you're doing that and then you think well maybe it's because they didn't have a car so now i have a car now i go back <laughs> this is the trial and error method right, right. you're gonna and she says yes so then i would conclude that well it wasn't because i was good looking it was it's because i have a car that she wants to go out with me right you know same thing like if your tv doesn't turn on what's mm -hmm. the first thing you think of well does the remote working the batteries you checked okay batteries are fresh mm -hmm. is it plugged in right. you know that's the same thing you just need to take that same approach to solving mm -hmm. real life problems into the scientific area that you you know encounter instead of thinking it's this boogeyman thing that you're doing it's the same process right so it's just a matter of taking those basic life skills uh -huh. uh, and using it in engineering as it is the other way around. If you learned it in engineering, apply it to your life. Right, and I have to kind of applaud you because I feel like sometimes it's challenging as an educator to, you know, some kids just get discouraged. Yes. So how do you work through, like, keep trying, it's okay. It's okay to fail, that's part of the process. So another thing that I use as an example, uh, so many people consider standardized tests the measurement of you know, success. Mm -hmm. uh, when in life do you ever sit down and do everything right the first time? Yet, when you sit down to a test, that's what you're expected to do. A better test would be you put four kids in a room with a box and you tell them if you can identify what the problem is in one hour and come up with two or three possible solutions and how you can test those solutions to see if your answer or your approach is correct, mm -hmm. then you know, you'll pass. So if they can define the problem, that's 50%. Because if you don't even know what the problem is, how are you going to solve it? And then second, if they show two or three systematic approaches to an attempt to solve that problem mm -hmm. and how they can tell if it worked or not, then they're going to be successful, 
even if they don't get the right answer for this particular test, because I know they understand the process. And in real life, how many times do you do something, four or five, six times before it finally works? Mm -hmm. That's real life, that should be the real measure of the test. And the process, again, is what schools need to emphasize. Not whether or not you get something right the first time, but can you construct a situation where you will find the answer? That's what they need to focus on. So here at Cise Puede, what do you do? So I'm the vice president president of STEM initiatives, and from from what I gather from that definition is, <laughs> I'm in charge of a lot of the different um, STEM activities that go on, whether it's one of the robotics teams or helping get the STEM center up and running with the equipment needed to service the community. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of things that uh, I'm involved in, along with you know maybe setting up workshops for different skills, maybe soldering, maybe welding, maybe whatever. Right. So uh, even outreach things to the parts of the community that you might not normally associate with. So uh, Excel and the United Cerebral Palsy uh, approached Sisa uh, Puede about doing a toy hackathon because they wanted to make toys that are normally inaccessible for students or students, uh, uh, people, kids that don't have the mobility or the dexterity or the strength to operate the buttons. Right. They came to us and asked us if we would, with our students, modify these toys in a way so that students can interact with the toys. So we made certain buttons bigger, very super easy to push. Uh, you don't need a lot of manual dexterity. And so then we donated those toys back to them and they gave it to the kids. So there's an example of Cisa Puede taking a problem that we can solve because we have kids that know how to solder and how to 3D print things. So we would take those skills and apply it to a group that doesn't have access to this stuff so that we could modify those toys for them. So that's just an example of how we want to serve the community. You guys have a program, She Se Puede, is yes. that correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, you know, uh, the statistics bear out that uh, the number of women in engineering is extremely small. I think I could be wrong, but I think it's as little as 12 to 15% in the professional workforce. Mm-hmm. And if you look at grade school, it's roughly 50-50. So as you move up from grade school to high school to college, there's an attrition in, in the female population. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the things we want to do is help reverse that. There's not enough female role models that are in engineering. Uh, I know because we try to find role models, they're very hard to find. Mm-hmm. But we need to help create some of those. And so by getting the kids interested, the young women interested in science and technology and Arduino projects and things like that early and give them the support and access without male dominance interference so no boys in the group uh, and, and and let them grow and feel confident right. and hopefully they continue as they go up then maybe they join one of our teams we have an all-girls high school robotics team we have an all-girls college robotics team mm-hmm. and uh, they act as role models for the younger kids so then they can come and step up and take the place and then when they go out in the workforce they've developed those survival skills in order to make it in a male-dominated field and not let that hinder them. We actually got the opportunity to talk to Desert WAVE, which stands for Women in Autonomous Vehicle Engineering, that was created in partnership with CISA Puede Foundation and Arizona State University a couple of years ago. And at that time, they had just won third place in a national underwater robotics competition. I find that my degree lacks a certain hands-on experience that I'm looking for, and uh, Desert Wave is a huge supplement to that that allows me to get exposure to mechanical and electrical processes and how it actually integrates to the things that I get to learn in my degree, so more software, computer-related side of engineering. It's this team that really helps propel me into the future. And we are Desert Wave, Women in Autonomous Engineering.
you see all these young girls and they're like, yeah, but math and science, that's not for me. And I'm like, great, because we're not just STEM anymore, we're STEAM. I started with art, this entire design, something as simple as like the logo right here. And they're like, you mean I can be an engineer too? Yeah, yeah, you can. Who you heard in that clip was Andrea Schoonover and Jessica Dirks, both members of Desert Wave. The day that we got the opportunity to talk to them, it was right before a council meeting where the mayor was going to hand them awards for their recent win during competition. I had actually edited that piece together for a Focus on Chandler video, and what I didn't realize when piecing it together was that Freddie is actually standing up there with the group, as I am positive he also had a part of that win. It's really cool to see how involved he is throughout the entire process with both high school and college teams. But is it cooler than having a movie about your life? I think the coolest thing was to actually be on the movie set to see how things are done. My current team, it was a team that was 10 years after the fact yeah. uh, when they made the movie, um, and a couple other teams that we recruited were the special effects department for the film because it was a low-budget film and they mm -hmm. couldn't afford a real special effects department. Mm -hmm. So we built 24 robots, there's really 12, yeah. but each one had to have a double in case it didn't work on the day they shot the film because you can't reschedule the pool time. Right. So doing that you know, and knowing that we participated and were operating all the robots, um, it was a fantastic experience getting to talk to the actors when they weren't actually acting and seeing how they were in real life. Mm -hmm. You know, meeting George Lopez, Marissa Tomei, and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was incredible. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's probably the, the coolest thing about it. Um, and being able to look up on the IMBD page and look at your name as robot operator. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> right, right. Well, if you haven't seen the movie, Spare Parts, please go check it out. It's a really great movie. And Freddie, thank you again. And we'll thank you. See you guys next time. Take care. Thank you to Nikki Tapia for bringing us such a cool story. And thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the city of Chandler. Make sure you check back next week for a new episode. And if you want to tap in with our social media, you can find us on all platforms through the city of Chandler and the ChandlerAZ.gov website.